chapter 19 and can be found on page 1113 in the Bibles in the chair in front of you. It is the first part of Luke's record of Paul's three-year stay and ministry in Ephesus. While Apollos was in Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. He found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years, so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits, trying to evoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of the Jesus who Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish priest, were doing this. One day, the spirit, evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know. And Paul, I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honour. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to $5 million. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. After all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I've been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. He sent two of his helpers, Timothy 
and Erastus to Macedonia, and he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. I was thinking it's three days till summer. (laughs) Feels like we're about to go into winter. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. And as we come to the end of this Beyond series, we pray that you would just warm our hearts for the ministry of the gospel, to be involved in it, to believe it and to be transformed through it. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, one of the realities of life is that ideas change people. And the history of the world is that uh, at various stages there's been ideas that have been put forward that have significantly changed the culture we live in, the world we live in. And there's no doubt significantly Christianity has had many ideas that have shaped our Western culture. Uh, I was thinking about a number of different areas. Um, My daughter's a lawyer and I was thinking about how our legal system borrows so heavily from our Judeo-Christian worldview. The whole concept that you are innocent until you are proven guilty uh, is absolutely ingrained in the Old Testament in terms of the laws of Moses. It's a cornerstone for our legal and criminal system. Another idea that shaped the world from the scriptures is that because we're made in the image of God, We are people of worth and dignity and value. And that completely revolutionised the first century Greco-Roman world as the Christian church went out and cared for people who formerly were not cared for. And today there is just a great sense uh, within our Western culture that flows from this notion um, that people have inherent worth, that there is human dignity, Uh, that there are inherent human rights and freedoms and a concern for the poor and the disadvantaged is just part and parcel of how we think. Um, No one questions that you should care for the poor, but yet that is something that was done uh, in former centuries. Ideas change people. And I want you to think about that as we come to this final passage in the series Beyond, as we look at the way the Word of God transforms a city. And it's a very powerful chapter that we've just had read. We had basically half of it. I'm going to talk about some of the things that carried on in the reading. But in many ways, when you look at the expansion of the Christian faith, as we've been through the book of Acts, it's a record of how an idea changed the early Greco-Roman world. And that idea is that Jesus Christ rose from the dead and he is now the Lord and Saviour of the world. And we today are still celebrating what we would say is not just an idea, but is actually historical reality. We've been going through chapters 10 to 19, it's the middle section, and it really has been the section that tracks the expansion of the gospel beyond Jerusalem out to the non-Jewish world or the Gentile world as it's called in the New Testament. And the establishment of the church beyond the walls of Jerusalem, chapter 11 we saw was the first church established in Antioch. And it wasn't just a church, it was a missionary church. It's one that both grew itself, but sent others out. And it really was the home base for Paul and Barnabas, these significant missionaries we've been looking at. And in the following chapters, we've seen two separate mission journeys from Paul, Barnabas, 
as they go out and preach the gospel and on the back of that establish groups of believers and the first churches in the non-Gentile world. And today we come to chapter 19 and we're effectively looking at Paul's third missionary journey. Now, unlike the others where he travelled a lot, this one substantially takes place in Ephesus. And probably the biggest observation that I want to make as we look at this is that what you see here is the power of the Word of God. The power of the Word of God. Now, if you've got your Bibles there, do open up Acts chapter 19. And uh, I want us to start at verse 20, uh, which was the last verse that was read to us. And verse 20 says this, In this way, the Word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Now, in many ways, this is not just a summary of what took place in Ephesus. It's actually a summary of what takes place all through the book of Acts. It's a phrase that is repeated on a number of occasions. Chapter 6, the word of the Lord spreads. In the early expansion to the non-Jewish world, twice it's recorded that the word of the Lord spreads. They can't contain it. And here in chapter 19, again, the word of the Lord spread widely and not just spread but grew in power. And I just want to stop by asking, what is the word of God or the word of the Lord that Luke is referring to here? Well, you could say in a formal sense, it is the Scriptures. There's no doubt that the Bible is the Word of God and in Anglican churches, the formulary that's often used in a formal setting when the Bible is read is people respond, this is the Word of God. And that's what we're saying, that the words you are reading are the words of God to us. But yet the Pharisees were criticised because even though they had the Scriptures, they didn't understand the Scriptures. And they didn't have that sense of insight into what the Word of God actually was speaking about. And so the mere fact that you have the Bible is no guarantee that you understand the Bible. Well, the Word of God is the Scriptures, but you'd want to say what the Scriptures are revealing is the Word of the Gospel. And though there are many books in the Bible, they're all about one story. That's the story of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is ultimately why the Word of God actually is Jesus. And you think about the way John the Apostle introduces Jesus to us in his gospel. We read it at Christmas time. The Word became flesh. He's dwelt amongst us and we've beheld his glory. And that is the Word of God. It is the Scriptures, but what do the Scriptures contain? Well, they contain the message of the Gospel, which is all about the Lord Jesus. And when it reads that the Word of the Lord spread, what is being described here is the message about Jesus cannot be stopped. That's what Paul is referring to. And there's three things you see here about this word of the Lord, this word about the Lord Jesus. It's a fruitful word, it's a powerful word and it's a transforming word. Let's have a look firstly at uh, Ephesians 19 verse 1 under the title of a fruitful word. Um, it's just an introductory comment while Paul was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus and this is kind of the main part of his third missionary journey here at Ephesus and I just want to say a couple of things about Ephesus because when you understand the background of the city it makes sense of what took place in Paul's ministry. 
Um, it was the fourth largest commercial centre of the region, uh, the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire. And today, if you went to Ephesus and you can go there on historical tours, it's in modern day Turkey. Now, geographically, it was located at a junction of several important land and sea routes. And it's worth noting that. So it's a city from which people could travel outwards. But third, and importantly, the temple Artemis resided there. Now, that's not the actual temple. That's what um, artists think it looked like. And it is a very significant place, or it was a very significant place. It was located outside the city walls, and it was the chief glory of this city in Ephesus. And it was associated with the Roman goddess Diana. So Artemis, Diana, they're kind of the same thing. And it was actually considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Incredible thing. Now, what was significant, though, is the practices that took place at the temple and the worship of Artemis gave Ephesus a reputation for being a centre for magic. Now, we might say the occult as well. And there were six magical Ephesian letters or words. Now, when I say a letter, I don't mean a written letter, but uh, in the sense of a, a whole letter, but a letter as in ABC, that were inscribed on the cultic image of the goddess Artemis. And the understanding was, if you could speak those words properly, it afforded you protection against evil and demonic forces. Now, the power apparently resided in their sound, so if you pronounce them ineffectively or wrongly, then there was no protection. And there was a great secrecy about these kinds of things. And so if you had kind of the inside knowledge on them, well, you might have them written down on scrolls and hidden away in your house. Let's look and see what happened when Paul went to that ministry. Now, I'm going to pick up from verse 8. There's some interesting stuff in the first six verses. I'm not going to refer to that just because of time. The main ministry starts at verse 8. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons, there you go, holy hankies, who would have thought? That they touched him, were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Now this section, and there's three sections to this uh, recounting of the ministry in Ephesus, is a summary of what took place. It's kind of an overview. Uh, he starts as usual in the synagogue, which was his practice as a Jew. He wanted to go to his fellow Jewish brothers and sisters and bring the news of Jesus to them. Now, unlike other places where he was often run out of the synagogue within weeks, he lasts three weeks, so he does pretty well there. But typically, in the end, they toss him out. Now, unlike some of the other places where he goes to a more private setting, here in Ephesus, there's a sense of boldness to him and he basically sets up shop in one of the public meeting places where probably the philosophers of the day would come and debate. Now, we don't know if he had to pay for this or not, but what we do know is he went to what was called the Hall of Tyrannus. 
We don't know about it today, as in it didn't survive uh, in terms of through the centuries. But the thing to note is it was a public venue. And Paul went there and taught daily. And a likelihood is that he may have worked in the morning. He was a tent maker, earned some money. And then at lunchtime, when people were having their break, he basically opened up the scriptures and taught them. And it says he taught about the kingdom of God. It's another way of describing the word of God and the message of Jesus, the kingdom that Jesus brings. And what was taking place now was that the gospel was widely available. And people were coming every day to both hear and be taught. And my assumption is also trained. Because we see the impact was far-reaching. In verse 10, we read, All the province heard the word of the Lord. It's an extraordinary reach that takes place from this ministry. Now we know from church history, the churches were planted from Ephesus. In other words, uh, as people came and were converted, they were totally transformed and numbers of them were raised up and sent out. The church in Colossae, which was, if I can say, in the regional areas beyond Ephesus, was started directly as a result of this ministry. The church in Laodicea most likely was exactly the same. And I'm sure there were other churches and fellowships that were started by missionaries who were raised up at this period and then sent out with the gospel to go and preach. Epaphras is the one we know that was, um, we understand, was trained here at Ephesus and then went out to Colossae. Read Colossians and you can see that story. But also there were miracles taking place in an extraordinary way. I mean, who would think of holy hankies? I mean, here's my one. I don't think you want it for healing, okay? But it was an amazing time. And I take it the miracles were God's way of putting his stamp on Paul to show that he he was the one who had the authoritative message that they had to listen to. It was a validation and authorization of his ministry. But why such fruitfulness that the whole region would hear the gospel? That churches would be established all around in that region? I take it this fruitfulness was tied to something quite ordinary and unremarkable in a human sense. The fruitfulness of this ministry was tied to the regular and I would imagine systematic and no doubt spirit-filled teaching of the word of God. Paul just turned up each day and taught them the scriptures and explained the gospel to them. And he did that day in, day out, day in, day out. And it produced an extraordinary harvest such that his entire city was now aware of the name of Jesus and that people were converted. Missionaries were sent out, churches were planted. And it was just through this ordinary activity of the regular, systematic teaching of the Word of God. And I think sometimes we think, does the Bible really have great power? And I want to ask us a question, what is our appetite for the Word of God? Because you saw there was this enormous appetite for it there at Ephesus. And it's a good question to ask ourselves because I pray that we will have a genuine desire and a thirst to read the Word of God, but not just to read it, 
to be taught the Word of God and not just to be taught it but to believe the Word of God and not just to believe it but as a result to do what it says and to have our lives shaped by the gospel. And I know that there's something very ordinary. I mean, where in society today do you see people get up and give 20, 30-minute talks and you have hundreds of people listening? Well, the church is one of the few places that that regularly takes place in. And we do it because of what we believe is of most important value, the teaching, the reading, the understanding, the applying the Word of God to our lives. It's essential if we are to be a fruitful church. And just on being a fruitful church, we also want to be sending people out. And we also want to be supporting missionary endeavours. We also want to be supporting churches being planted. And that's why we are rallying people to give towards our mission partners. Today's the last week we're going to be talking about that. If you haven't had a chance... Uh, if I can just back up what, Paul, uh, what Scott has already said, uh, that when you get home, think about how you can also contribute towards these great ministries. And so what you see here is the Word of God has this fruitfulness that is incredible in the town of Ephesus, but it's also a very powerful word. If the first section describes generally what took place in the ministry of Ephesus, the next two sections describes specifically a couple of very powerful incidents that took place. Have a look with me at verse 13 through to 19. Some of the Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. As I said, Ephesus was a centre of magic. Uh, There was a great interest but also reality to evil spirits in this place. And there were people who would use magic... And often it would be the sense of having a word or a name that you could use to cast the evil spirit out. Paul had done this himself successfully. And what you had there was seven sons of Sceva, we read, a Jewish priest, were doing this. And what they were doing, it says, was in the name of Jesus, I command you to come out, we read. And I take it they had seen Paul successfully doing it and they thought, oh, he's got the magic words. And it's kind of comical. It's kind of, and it's probably an easy one to pronounce, Jesus. They think we'll use that name. Well, the problem was it didn't end well. One day that evil, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I know about. It is a fascinating comment that the evil spirits know who the risen Lord Jesus is. They know he is in full authority and control. They also say, we know about Paul, but who are you? Would have been a frightening thing to encounter. Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them, there's seven of them, overpowered all of them. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. It appears both comical and scary that they've tried to copy the Apostle Paul, thinking that somehow he's got the magic word, but it leads to them being beaten up by the demon-possessed man. Verse 17. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honour. No surprises there. 
What is surprising is what we read in verse 18. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they'd done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. I know uh, in the reading we had it had $5 million. Uh, obviously, the uh, translation was done a number of years ago because I calculated 50,000 drachmas, which is a day's wage, and I got it now to $15 million. Now, it depends on what you think is the average day wage. It's a lot of money. What was going on? Well, it's interesting. Because of the regular teaching and preaching of Paul, the city now knew about Jesus his name was known in the region. We've seen that as he proclaimed the word of God. But this demonic incident reinforced to the believers that they needed to take this gospel seriously. And I take it what had taken place was, and it's interesting, the references here to many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they'd done, that you had people who had come to faith in Christ but were still holding on to their magic scrolls. And it was like an each way bet. (laughs) We'll take Jesus, but in case he doesn't work, we'll keep our magic scrolls. Now, these would have been very valuable and probably privately held because supposedly they contain secrets you didn't want to share. And the value was enormous, $15 million. But this sense of conviction by God comes upon them as they see the reality that Christ is the risen King. And they cast their books out. And they do it publicly. And they burn them. And there's this great sense of public confession. And the Word of God was coming to them in great power. And they were convicted that they needed to live for Jesus and him alone, the risen king of the world. And as I was writing this, I thought, what does this show us? Well, I think it shows us two things. Jesus is the only name. He is the name above every other name. He is the king of kings and we need to live for him. But you also see here clearly that people can confess Christ publicly while holding on privately to things that we should literally cast off. And that's exactly what had taken place here. Publicly they were known as believers, yet privately there were parts of their life that they absolutely needed to distance themselves from and get rid of. I remember, uh, this might shock you, uh, I've told it to the night church, But as a young Christian, um, one of the things that I had was pornography. And I had dabbled in that as uh, not as a Christian. And I remember being convicted by God at this point early in my Christian life that I just needed to get rid of it. And I was thinking about books being thrown out. I actually remember getting the magazines out from under the bed and in the the shelves. Well, they were hidden, obviously, from my mother. (laughs) And putting them in the garbage bin. Be gone. And it was just this moment of that I needed to line up my private life with my public confession. 
And that's what was taking place here. That there was a conviction that God, through the Lord Jesus Christ, was the King of Kings. There was an awe and a fear of Him, a wonder about Him that they needed to live for Him alone. And the great gospel reality is this, God takes us as we are. He takes us with all of our faults. He took me with all of my issues. He takes us with all of our sins and all of our addictions. And He forgives them. And then He starts to clean them up and transform us. But for that to happen, we need to let the Word of God search our hearts and lead us to a place of repentance with the things that we wrongly treasure and value and get rid of them and I don't know with you today whether there's things in your life that you privately treasure but God is convicting you to say let them go and let me assure you when we let them go there is a freedom we find and a joy in knowing Christ well the last thing we see is that there's this word transforms this city it's quite remarkable and this last story relates to the overall impact of the ministry of the word of God and the gospel in Ephesus and from what we can work out from the narrative people were so affected and transformed by the gospel that they gave up in droves their old ways of idol worship if you've got your Bibles, have a look at verse 23. It's further on from where we finished the reading today. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. Now, the way was uh, a tag, a description for the Christians uh, in the first century. They were called the people of the way because they followed in the way of the Lord Jesus. Verse 24, a silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver, silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together along with the workers in related trades and said, you know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. Now, I'm going to show you something. Uh, these are little um, trinkets, amulets. They're from Ephesus, uh, from this period. That one there is most likely Artemis that you're reading about here. Now, that's in the British Museum. When I had long service leave, we went and visited our daughter in London and I spent quite a few days there at the British Museum. It's an amazing place. And the biblical history stuff is profound. And these are actual trinkets. I call them the trinkets, but that is Artemis, most likely. And that's what the silversmiths were making. And we read this in verse 26. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia... He says that the gods made by human hands are no gods at all. In other words, what we're making and what we're selling, he's saying it's rubbish. It's an outrage. There's a danger that not only our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. Now, what happens? Verse 28, um, when they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. Why are they so upset? Well, it's very simple. So many people got converted and 
were transformed that they gave up their idols to the extent that they were putting the idol makers out of business. Now, if you think this is a far-fetched thing to happen, let me tell you about what happened when Billy Graham came in 1959. Uh, It is probably one of the great moments in Australian church history in the last hundred years. They estimate that in what was called the Southern Cross Crusade, perhaps 50% of the people of Australia either heard Billy live or on the airwaves or via what were called telephone lines that were set up to broadcast his message. And here's a few of the stories that resulted. I mean, crooks were converted and were handing their guns into the police. There's a story of an undercover Russian spy who'd been busted by ASIO, but got converted and then went back to ASIO to say, I haven't told you the full story. The alcohol consumption levels in Sydney dropped by 10%. Crime rate was doubling every decade. But in the period after the crusade, it levelled off. It was profound, the impact. The word of God came to Sydney and the country in such power that a region was transformed. And that's exactly what took place in Ephesus. There was this transformation of people's lives that led to the transformation of a city. And that is the power of the word of God. It works within us as we come to comprehend and as we encounter the reality that Christ is risen, that he is the king of the world, that he is the living saviour who saves us by his death and resurrection, but also he is the coming king who will judge the living and the dead. And when that message comes in power so that people are in awe of him, people's lives are transformed. As we realise the greatest thing in life is not the things that this world offers us, but it's the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ himself and the eternal life he brings. And that's why Paul could summarise in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Because there was an idea that changed that ancient city of Ephesus. That Christ is the ruling king who loves you and has died for you and has risen again and will one day return. And I want to finish by simply asking, do you know this risen Christ yourself? Is the word of God, the word of the gospel, powerfully at work in your life to transform you? And is the name of the Lord Jesus held in high honour and awe in all that you do? Let's stop and pray. Father, we do thank you for this message, the word of God, the gospel, the living word, the Lord Jesus Christ. May that word be powerfully at work in us. May we love your word. 
And may we love the living word, the Lord Jesus Christ. And may we honour him and be transformed by him in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen.